your, your three big things that opponents will will wring their hands out over is, oh, it takes too long and we need to do something now. And, oh, it costs too much. We need to, you know, you know, deploy, you know, cheaper stuff. And, and, uh, and then a finally, of course, is the waste. Now, every gram of nuclear material in the Western world and arguably planet Earth is accounted for, right? Where you don't know where the material, the, the, the waste from creating solar cells is phenomenal. And the waste from creating windmills is astounding, right? And the waste from creating batteries would make your eyes water. Uh, you know, it's, you know, so there's no free lunch. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on part one of this two-part series, you will hear from John Kutch on how he created the Thorium Energy Alliance. You will learn about the history of nuclear, the problems of nuclear, or rather the public's perception around nuclear. We will look into Plant Vogel, which is located in Georgia, to understand the complexity of building nuclear reactors, as well as understanding the public's fear of nuclear after the events at Fukushima, Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island. Lastly, we will take a deep dive into uranium to understand what fuels nuclear reactors today. What is nuclear? Is it bombs? Is it energy? Is it the future? These are questions that I have found myself asking over the past few years. Growing up, the little I heard about nuclear was negative. Learning about World War II and the atomic bombs that wiped out Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the meltdowns at nuclear plants in the U.S., and the constant post threat of nuclear war by Eastern nations. With advanced technology, there are always benefits and threats, with the threats usually focusing on the people who hold that specific technology. Take ChatGPT, OpenAI's platform, for example. Powerful technology that can benefit humanity greatly but if the data is put in the wrong hands, it could pose a threat. Nuclear is the cleanest form of energy we have, and if we want to hit the Biden administration's target of 80% renewable energy generation by 2030, nuclear is the only answer. Nuclear is the only form of renewable energy that can scale. And why is scale important, you may ask? According to the United Nations, the world population is projected to reach 8.5 billion in 2030, and increase further to 9.7 billion in 2050. Without a cohesive approach to energy, we will suffer greatly as a world. Our guest on the Green Hour today is someone who has dedicated his life to finding cleaner and more efficient methods to energy through nuclear, specifically using thorium. John Kutch is the executive director for the Thorium Energy Alliance, a non-governmental, non-profit, 501c3 educational organization based in the United States. 
which seeks to promote energy security to the world through the use of thorium as a fuel source. Thorium is a radioactive chemical element that could in theory be used to generate large quantities of low carbon electricity in future decades. Compared to the uranium that powers today's nuclear plants, thorium is more abundant and widely distributed in the Earth's crust. Back in 2006, John was working with a client through his engineering consultancy when he came across the element thorium. Not knowing much about it, he began looking into its uses and what jumped out to him was first its abundance and second its potential to lead clean energy in the future. It felt like he had just hit a gold mine or rather a monazite placer deposit. Back in 2006, 2007, yeah, I, well, at first I should say I run an engineering company called Whole World, and we do uh, all sorts of uh, uh, engineering for uh, energy systems, but medical systems, medical devices. Uh, we've done lots of consumer devices. So we're a typical uh, engineering firm, maybe not so typical, but one of our clients... <laughs> In 2006, 2007 area, they came to us and said, hey, uh, we need a replacement for uh, this material in our process. And the guy just was running through the periodic table. He didn't know what he was talking about. He's just like, will lead work? Will tin work? Will iron work? You know, he's just, he's just naming every metal in the periodic table. And, and uh, he eventually made his way to the end of the periodic table and was like, will thorium work? And uh, I said, you know, I don't know, man. We'll we'll look it up. And uh, and so we did. We looked it up and gave a little report. And for what he wanted to do, it it wouldn't have worked real good. Uh, uh, but it was fascinating. Even back then, what little was available online was so enticing that we'd missed this opportunity to use this material. And uh, you know, there's only. There's only a few naturally occurring elements out there on planet Earth. You know, there's, you know, there's basically, you know, 94, 95 of them. And, uh, you know, so every one is precious and does something unique. And we said thorium can be a fuel. It can be the super advanced material. Uh, why don't we pursue this? Who's pursuing it? Nobody was really uh, to any degree. And so we started Thorium Energy Alliance to promote the use of thorium as a nuclear fuel because it's very abundant, very easy to handle because it's not, you know, it's not really very radioactive. And it also has these material properties that allow it to be uh, an alloy and a catalyst and uh, all sorts of other things that we can talk about later. So, and through that, we started doing a lot of advocacy for advanced reactors, and in particular, inherently safe, high-temperature molten salt reactors. And that might be a little, that might be a very long elevator ride we were just on to, to say all that, but I mean, that's the gist of it. We, we had a client that asked us about thorium, and because that piqued our interest, we, uh, we felt it was our duty to start the Thorium Energy Alliance to promote its use. Uh, because it, it really, it's one of the great technological missed opportunities. And uh, hopefully we can help rectify that. Right. So so back in, in 2006, 2007, when you came across this this material or this, this element on the periodic table, thorium, 
What was it being used for back then? I mean, you were saying that it wasn't really tapped into the potential of thorium, but was thorium being used for for different things back in you know two thousand six or seven, or or was it just kind of sitting there? Yeah, I mean, there were still there were still actual commercial uses for thorium, just as there are today. Uh, there's a thoriated welding rods and thoriated welding wire because. Uh, it's a very big atom, and it's got a lot of electrons to share. So you can imagine things that need a lot of electrons, uh, you know, like welding. It helps sustain arcs. If you're, a, if you're a welder, that's a big deal, especially on exotic materials like Inconel and things like that. The, uh, the other thing is uh, every microwave or almost every microwave uses a, a thorium in the magnetron. To uh, to excite uh, you know to make the microwave energy and to boil the water molecules in your food and magnetrons are the basis of radar and so radar tubes still use uh, thorium quite often uh, and you know as much as they try and find substitutes to thorium which is ridiculous if you ask me because there's this you know this lingering fear about a slight alpha emitter but uh, you know, nothing beats thorium if you need a lot of electrons uh, in your thing. So there's there's applications uh, that the Russians were looking at back then to make uh, wires more conductive, not quite superconducting. So you can see even even at the bottom of its use, you know, uh, back in the 60s, 50s, 70s, there were hundreds of uses for thorium. Uh, but even to this day, there's still some very critical uses of, of thorium and uh, the possibilities. We bear, Here's the weird thing. We barely know anything about the metallurgy, you know, so it's the, you know, and we can speak about it later. But there's a huge uh, amount of applications for, for thorium in the commercial end, let alone fuel. I mean, it's got it's got very, very attractive properties for nuclear fuel also. Right away, we're talking about nuclear a little bit. So um, really, I want to touch on nuclear. I mean, as we talked beforehand, John, it's ever since I started this podcast, people have asked me, so so how about nuclear? You know, how about, you know, is nuclear good? Is it bad? You know, why why are we not investing more money in nuclear? And and to be frank with you, I didn't know much of anything about nuclear, nuclear energy, nuclear fission, about uranium, thorium, all of these different elements. I, I knew nothing. Um, so, you know, after after um, speaking with you and researching this stuff, it, it was really eye opening in, in what nuclear is. And I'm glad, again, that you're, you're here to, to explain this because it's such a such a big topic. It's a polarizing topic, um, not only across our country, but the world in general. So. The first segment I want to go into, and if you could, um, with your experience and expertise in this field, talk a little bit about the history of nuclear energy and, again, how we got to where we are today in this specific field. Sure. Uh, so civilian nuclear, if you, know, if, uh, if you want me to give you a little rundown on, on uh, nuclear and where we, how we got here, uh, the... Civilian nuclear really started in the in the fifties, and because uh, Admiral Rickover wanted a, a a nuclear power plant for his submarine, and so they 
they decided on uh, using uranium for their fuel and using water as their moderator, and uh, and they would uh, they would basically it was just a giant tea kettle to boil water, right? And it was very very safe inside a submarine because you're surrounded by your coolant, right? So so if you ever if you're ever in a pinch in a submarine, you just open up a hatch. And your reactor always has coolant, right? So, unfortunately, from then, you know, they went, they took that reactor and basically made a civilian version of it. But reactors on land aren't necessarily surrounded by water. They might be by a river or an ocean or a lake. But, you know, this is every, every accident that's ever happened in the civilian nuclear world, uh, except for... Uh, uh, you know, Russia really with their their Chernobyl incident, uh, and even that one you could say uh, had something to do with water. So, uh, so all the reactors we built in the last seventy years uh, for power generation for civilian nuclear have been water, light water, boiling water reactors, heavy water reactors like the Candu reactors up in Canada. And so, but they've all been water moderated. But that doesn't mean that we can't have other reactors that aren't uh, using much, much different uh, material. So we could use graphite moderated reactors. Uh, we could uh, uh, use different fuels like thorium or spent nuclear fuel. And instead of considering nuclear waste waste, we could say it's just future nuclear fuel. Uh, because 95% of the energy in spent nuclear fuel is still there. So there's a huge opportunity to use spent nuclear fuel as fuel. Uh, plutonium could be part of a fuel matrix, so we could take nuclear weapons and turn them into energy instead of weapons. So there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there, and we could go into uh, advanced reactors. So the, the light water reactor water moderated reactor is sort of the current technology legacy technology from the 50s and 60s and what we're trying to do is go into reactors that are what are known as inherently safe reactors because they use a coolant like molten salt or lead or sodium or they use a coolant like helium uh, like a high temperature gas reactor and uh, so the combination of fuels like thorium and salt and running at no pressure and not put, introducing water, which can cause a steam explosion or a hydrogen explosion. If you get rid of all those uh, possibilities for a, a catastrophic failure, you have what's known as an inherently safe reactor. So if you have a reactor that's not running at any pressure, then you're not going to get an explosion. If you have a reactor that can't overheat, then you're not going to have a reactor that melts down because it's already, in a sense, melted down. You know, if you have a nuclear fuel that limits its uh, um, ability to proliferate and be turned into weapons, like you cannot use thorium as a nuclear weapon, right? And so uh, you get some inherent proliferation resistance from using that. You know, and, and then there's a lot of other knock-on effects uh, uh, 
uh, from you from using thorium in particular. I happen to be a fan, as you know. But uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure if that answered your your question. I mean, we could go into just the very basics of how do you make energy from a from a nuclear reactor. No, and, no, no. That's that, that was perfect. Perfect. Um, okay. And, and the next thing I would 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 say is, you know, if I think back to when I was in college and think back to, you know, when I took environmental science, um, we had a whole topic, a whole lesson on nuclear, um, nuclear energy. And, you know, what we were told was, yeah, nuclear is the cleanest form of energy. If we can just get to this point, you know, we will cut carbon emissions. You know, we will have cleaner energy for all. But um, what what the professor and, and what, you know, a lot of these people would say is, you know, there's a lot of problems with nuclear and the problems that they discussed and the problems that a lot of people talk about is, is the first one is the time that it takes to produce a facility. I think I remember in, in that class, he had said, you know, it takes around 12 years or so to produce a nuclear facility. And, you know, I would I would ask you, um, is that is that accurate? What is the time it takes to produce you know, a singular nuclear facility? Well, that is entirely a Western uh, issue, okay? So the the idea that these plants take a long time is not how it used to be. Uh, even when the days in the 70s, when the plants were one-off, each plant was unique, stick-built from scratch, you know, won't go down the rabbit hole of why American reactors weren't standardized the way French reactors were. It's, you know, it was a stupid decision. You know, the French only have essentially one type of reactor and that's why they're, they were able to build 85 reactors in 10 years. All right. And they switched, they over 80% of their power comes from nuclear in France. And they were able to do that you know, from before Three Mile Island right through Chernobyl. They had a lot of guts, and they just kept at it, and they've gotten a huge return on their investment because of that. You know, in the United States, we built 144 reactors from the late 60s to the early 80s, and we we built those on an average of two years to build a reactor back then, and they weren't... Uh, they weren't getting over budget, and even though they were highly uh, customized and single, you know, design, which, as we noted, was a stupid uh, business decision and not a technical decision, uh, they they started ramping down introduction of new reactors. Everyone likes to think it had something to do with Three Mile Island. It didn't. It was back in the uh, seven, 76, 77 era when Carter introduced the Department of Energy, they started saddling reactor deployment with just more and more and more, you know, regulation and inspection uh, to a level that no other industry would ever put up with, by the way. You know, medical devices and drugs, which are vastly more dangerous, would never put up with this level of, of scrutiny uh, which, which, by the way, leads to no, uh, no increase in safety. You know, they call, you know, oh, we do it for safety. It's like, a, you know, 
over inspection actually decreases safety and they actually like that that's a that's a feature not a bug but as an example uh you know if you look at diablo canyon which took almost 18 years to come online you know it paid for itself just a few years after coming online so all that delay all that finance imagine 18 years of paying uh, you know it's like buying a house and paying the mortgage on a house for 18 years and not being able to occupy it so there's right. a huge huge cost burden in the financing you know plant vogel three and four where you're at the, the they're like oh look at the cost overruns but their cost overruns because of the financing that they have to pay on the the construction loans while they're delayed over and over for just you know very specious reasons so the the great hope in the world is the koreans built four nuclear reactors for the united arab emirates in 2010 the united arab so 2010 just 13 years ago, 2010, the United Arab Emirates from scratch, zero, nothing. They said, we're going to be a nuclear power. They, they built roads. They built ports. They built a school. They started a, a regulatory regime. They hired inspectors. They trained inspectors. And they built four merchant class reactors for almost 6,000 megawatts of electricity. They did it all in 10 years on time and under budget or on budget. And uh, the last reactor is coming online this year. So it's proof that we can build reactors, super high quality reactors quickly and on budget, two and a half billion dollars a reactor. That's pretty good. You know, that's on, that's, that's on par or cheaper than a natural gas combined cycle reactor of the same size. So the reason we are slow and expensive in the West is because that is the stated strategy of the opponents of nuclear is to make it very, very difficult to deploy nuclear. Uh, and they know time is money. Absolutely. And the, the more time it takes to deploy a new nuclear plant, the, the, the greater the cost. And, uh, and then they can point back at it and say, Oh, look, Look how long it takes. Look at how slow it is. And so you're going to find countries like El Salvador and Nicaragua and Egypt and Turkey, you know, and Malaysia and Indonesia. You're going to see you're going to see developing countries being the place where all this new nuclear technology gets deployed. And unfortunately, it makes me very sad as a as a U.S. citizen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we have a lot of division, obviously, in our world today. I mean. Right. If you're if you're looking at politics, there's a lot of division um, and nuclear has been a divided um, topic as well. But really, it shouldn't be, because if you just look at how clean this energy is, you look at countries like what you're saying in France, if, if you're getting 80 percent of your energy from nuclear and you, you're seeing how efficient that works for them. I mean, we need to take these case studies from other countries and use them in the state. What, what frustrates me and I know, John, you're the same way is. You see something that works and you see something that, you know, will improve humanity, improve citizens in the U.S., but people are just divisive over it because maybe, you know, the people that, that they don't like, that's what they want to do. And so they say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to do it because you want to do it. Um, we, we talked about, I mean, not me, but you, you touched on Vogel in Georgia. 
And, you know, obviously I, I live in the Atlanta area, so I hear about this all the time. And, and Vogel, you know, it just, um, I don't know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, reached the stage of initial um, criticality, um, which is really, really good because it's the first um, the first U.S. nuclear power plant since uh, 2016 to reach this stage. It's been seven years since, you know, a, a power plant has reached that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is very, very good. You touched on, you know, how Vogel, you know, it's gone over budget. It's gone over, over time um, that it was, you know, initially planned for. But as you said, that money and that time, after it's finished, I mean, we will reap the benefits and it will repay itself. Yeah, I think I think the number was the initial budget was 14 billion. Right now it's at 30 billion. Um, but again, I mean, as you're saying, when you have division and you have people that aren't agreeing, they're just going to keep putting roadblocks and obstacles up and it's going to keep um, adding and adding and adding to that to that money and, and the cost. So. So, yeah, I mean, you, you touched on. The cost to produce each plant, that's another big thing, big problem that people talk about. Um, but lastly, a big problem is the waste. Um, you're talking about the nuclear waste that mm-hmm. comes out of these plants. Um, and um, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but um, from what I've read is the current uranium-fueled reactors, the nuclear waste that comes out, um, the, the waste has to be stored for up to 10,000 years. Is that correct? Yeah, waste is an excellent subject to hit on because, you know, the, you know, deploy, you know, cheaper stuff and and uh, and then a finally, of course, is the waste. Now, every gram of nuclear material in the Western world and arguably planet Earth is accounted for, right? Where you don't know where the material, the, the, the waste from creating solar cells is phenomenal. And the waste from creating windmills is astounding, right? And the waste from creating batteries would make your eyes water. Uh, you know, it's, you know, so there's no free lunch, all right? And so the nuclear waste, one, we know where it is. We don't know where the solar waste and windmill waste from old solar cells and windmills is going to go. We know that we know exactly where waste from nuclear reactors should go. It should either be put in a cave somewhere for a future generation to access because it's not waste. It's spent nuclear fuel. There's incredibly valuable elements in it. There's untold amounts of nuclear medicine and other uh, the most unbelievably powerful materials in the universe, and we're treating them like it's trash, when in fact, one day we're going to be smart enough to realize these things are gifts of the universe. Uh, but if you do want to throw it away, we can put it in geologic salt domes. We can, like the WIP, the Waste Interment Pilot Project, we could put it in a a very, very deep hole in the ground, like deep isolation or like the Finns are doing or the Swedes are going to do or the Chinese. So there is no waste problem. We know where it is. We know how to handle it. We handle it every day. Fine. Some small bit of it might be radioactive for a thousand years, 10,000 years. I don't care. A billion years. Thorium thorium has a half-life of 14 and a half billion years a half-life, right? Older than the universe. So it's like, 
What does that mean? Oh, does that mean scariness? No. Things that have long half-lives are not very radioactive. Things that have half-lives of like a minute, that's giving up all their energy in a minute. You know, So I'd rather deal with something that's radioactive for 10,000 years because if it's radioactive for 10,000 years, that means the radiation is leaking out of it very, very, very slowly. You know, if you want me to handle something that's radioactive for 10 days, I'll be like, hey, you know, put on the lead gloves and, you know, stand back. So people don't understand that. Like everyone says, oh, it's radioactive for 10,000 years. And and Preston, at the end of 10,000 years, you know what you have, like, for instance, in the case of thorium, you have lead. Okay. You know what you have at the end of 10,000 years with mercury that comes from coal plants or, uh, Uh, you know, the heavy metals used in solar cells, you know how long those things are toxic and dangerous for? Forever, right? Not 10,000 years, 10 billion years. You know, the the gallium, the the arsenic that's used in solar cells, you know, the the mercury that comes out of burning coal, you know, those things are dangerous forever and ever and ever. You know, so this idea that something might be dangerous for a couple hundred years, by the way, if we start reprocessing nuclear fuel like we should, we take that 10,000-year number down to two or 300 years, right? And if we start building fast reactors like the Russian BN-800, the waste, so-called waste, from a light water reactor can go into a BN-800. The BN-800 can eat that waste and and its waste goes to feed the light water reactor. So it's no more waste. We've closed the fuel cycle. It's the, been the dream since the 50s to close the fuel cycle. So you get a fission reactor that fissions the material, and then you get a breeder reactor that brings it back up, and then the fission burns it back down. And so we've closed the fuel cycle now. I mean, it's been the dream of 100,000 years of human beings. It's truly endless energy. Isn't that what we wanted all along? You know, it just, it baffles me that somebody wouldn't want this. And, you know, when when you talk about waste also, we'll just hit on for just a second. Fusion, if people are like, okay, well, I want nuclear, but I want it to be fusion. Fusion is no answer. Fusion is also phenomenally radioactive, astounding amounts of radiation. There's, I don't know how fusion, had, you know, they hired a really good PR agent. Because fusion, fusion is really, really radioactive, and it has radioactive waste. So you're not getting a free lunch. You know, you want solar, you got heavy metals to deal with. You want wind, well, then you're digging up rare earths in China and processing with the, with you know, in the least environmentally responsible way. You want batteries, you're getting cobalt from the Congo and graphite from you know very bad locations. And it's filthy as hell, you know. So, you know, we need to put on our adult panties and, you know, pick the most energy-dense, cleanest, safest energy known to man, which is nuclear, and deal with any of the other things like a little bit of spent nuclear fuel like adults. You know, we're not going to have unicorns and rainbows, you know, and Skittles falling from the sky, you know, if you know, the, a world of 8 billion people needs about 10 times more energy than we're producing today. And, uh, 
And, you know, if you want to eat, you want to fly in your plane, if you want to drive your car, if you want two or three or four or five billion people living the way you live, think about the amount of energy and resources that's going to take. And you're not going to do it on the back of a sheet of glass that collects a few electrons here and there from, from the sky. The only thing that remotely has the chance to provide that energy density is nuclear power. Solar and wind, great, right? But it's it's almost like putting a Band-Aid on, on the issue just for, just for a short time because when we're talking about efficiency and if you're talking about, you know, really going out and providing energy for the masses, like you're saying, if, if we're talking about, you know, bringing in two to three billion more people in our world, solar and wind, yeah, I mean, it, it can solve some problems, but not to that scale, not to that scale. And that's what nuclear that's what nuclear is. Um, nuclear is able to, in business, you talk about what can scale and what can't scale. Nuclear mm-hmm. can scale. Wind and solar, they're great, but they can't scale to that level. So you had touched on, um, you wanted to talk a little bit more on Vogel. So was there anything else you wanted to say about Vogel in Georgia? The core takeaway from plant Vogel 3 and 4 is that the astounding amount of uh, intervention, I'm trying to figure out the most politically nice way to put it, but the regulator really, really, you know, was just blatantly, astoundingly, you know, over the top with the things they did to that construction project, making them tear out concrete because they didn't like the way the rebar was wrapped, you know, things like that, that that cost hundreds of millions of dollars of direct uh, cost. Then they put on fines because they didn't like things like that. And then there's the ultimate fine of the finance charges that, you know, the two-year delay that that added cost billions of dollars. But I will tell you, there is a headline from the future that you are never going to see because no one wants you to see it. And the headline from the future, in about five or six years, the headline of the future you're not going to see is, Plant Vogel 3 and 4 paid off. Because let me tell you, those things are going to make enough power in a time when natural gas is going to go back to its natural price point of seven, eight, ten, thirteen dollars a million BTU, and solar and wind are not going to make up any difference in filling the gap in power, and coal isn't going to come back online, and neither is fossil fuel, and so you are going to be raking in money hand over fist if you own a nuclear reactor, and even with the astounding cost overruns and delay at plant Vogel three and four, they will pay themselves off in five or six years. I guarantee you. And that'll be a tiny little press release in some industry rag and it'll go by and people won't realize, Oh, all this money, time, blood, sweat, tears, it paid for itself. And now we're getting energy, you know, you know, uh, the payback time of solar and wind is sometimes never, right? Sometimes you never get back the energy and money you put into solar before you need to replace it, right? So, I mean, there's an energy deficit to building a windmill, right? It takes, you know, X amount of megawatts and resources to build a, a windmill. 
How long does it take for that windmill to spin in the wind to generate more megawatts than it took to create it in the first place? That's your energy mm -hmm. deficit. Sometimes that's never because people realize now, oh, windmills need endless maintenance. So as you start to pay back that energy deficit, now you got to get these little robots to crawl out on the wings and relaminate them because they're get, getting shredded, you know, and so they now that's more energy, you know, now you got to pay. But so it's like you never get out of that debt cycle sometimes, you know, I mean, very occasionally some of these, you know, big installations, but same thing with batteries. The amount of energy it takes to create a battery sometimes never gets paid back by the battery's output. So the last thing I'll say on Plant Vogel 3 and 4 is that the CEO of uh, Southern Company Nuclear, uh, Mr. Kaczynski, great guy, really stuck to his guns. He's getting it done, pulling it across the finish line. He's also a huge investor in... Uh, chloride salt reactors and a few other advanced reactors. This is Southern Company's the last United States power company that invents and uh, invests in, in in research and development. So they should be very proud of themselves. Uh, from what I know, he offered to finish Scana, which was the other AP one thousand plants that were abandoned uh, because of their cost overruns and. From what I know, he said, look, we learned so much about building Vogel 3 and 4 that we'll finish Scana. And because of stupid politics and because of the way the independent system operators work, ISO, you know, the, the they didn't want Southern Company coming into their independent system operator and owning and finishing and owning a reactor over there. It was, it's, it's lunacy. This is how we've gotten to and in the United States is uh, our, our energy markets are our cracker bananas. And I don't know why anybody would want to get into electricity production. You know, one of the things I point out about advanced reactors is that they're very, they run at very high temperatures, you know, five, six, 700 degrees Celsius. And when you do that, you can start to replace uh, burning natural gas, right? So, Instead of burning natural gas, you can make steel with nuclear. You could make iron with nuclear. You can make cement with nuclear. You can make hydrogen and lubricants and uprate petroleum and desalinate water. You know, so uh, if you have a lot of heat energy, throwing half your heat energy away to make electricity isn't the best use of your fabulous source of heat energy. So anybody who's in the advanced reactor business, I would say, concentrate on looking for process heat uses instead of electricity because electricity in the western world is is it's become bananas because solar and wind get all the best pricing and you know merchant class baseload power like nuclear which holds up the sky uh nuclear gets the worst possible pricing so it's not fair and nuclear gets almost no credit for being carbon-free. So nuclear almost never gets carbon credits, you know, like others do. So, anyway, I've wandered off the reservation there for, from your question. I will. <laughs> no, it, it, it was a great, great explanation. I mean, from that, I mean, 
I would say it seems like the East um, is ahead in a lot of a lot of areas. On the West, there's so much division and nobody can agree. I mean, last last week or a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Emma about um, rare earth elements and mining, and the East is far ahead, far ahead on that in, in that area as well. Um, and you know, talking with talking with Max a month and a half ago on an episode talking about semiconductors, and the East is again way ahead in that market. So we're trying to dig and claw ourselves out of this pit, um, but we've really, you know, we've, we put ourselves in this pit because we can't agree on anything. And, you know, our policy has really brought us to this point. So I think that Vogel, you know, even though it's been over budget, even though it's extended its, its time period, it's a great, like you said, it's a great case study for future nuclear power plants. And what we need to understand is we need to be on the same page politically. And I think that, like you're saying, in five to six years, when that headline that should be appearing, it's, it's not going to appear. But when it says it's paid off, you know, people will start to understand, OK, nuclear, um, these nuclear power plants are for real and they're here to stay. Um, and we need to get on the same page politically. And the second thing is understand the ROI of these power plants. Again, like you're saying, if, if it's going to take us that long and, and considering that what you're saying ends up being correct, right? That's the future. Um, we can't we can't tell the future, but um, we we have a pretty good understanding. If if we understand that in four to five years, five to six years, that we can pay these things off, then okay, let's produce these at a faster rate um, for less for less money and less fines, less less obstacles in the way. So. Um, yeah, I, I would say that Vogel is a great case study. It hasn't gone exactly to plan, you would say, but it's given us a great piece of education that we can use in the future. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Diablo Canyon was probably adjusted for inflation, the longest, most expensive plants to make. And there was originally supposed to be four more plants there. It was supposed to be a six set of six plants. Hmm. And... That those six plants plus San Onofre would have provided probably sixty percent of the power for all of California. So California would have already met its carbon-free goals if they just done that. You know, so like, what is the what is the price they're paying now? And all of their energy, you know, is not coming from their solar and wind. It's coming from natural gas. And it's coming from coal being burned in Nevada, being burned in Arizona, you know. So they get to say, oh, well, we shut down all our coal plants in California. Yeah, you just exported them to another state. You know, it's it's the worst form of greenwashing. And uh, uh, so Diablo Canyon was another example of, like, the headline you never saw. You know, like, Diablo Canyon basically was was so powerful when it started that that it basically it paid for itself even after 18 years of delays and you know lawsuits and all this stuff and you know they 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 actually it's a it became a very profitable plant very quickly uh and uh it's been operating for well over 35 years now and it's a it's an excellent plant it's probably one of the best plants in america and they're fighting day and night to shut it off. So it just makes no sense. And you can imagine, you want to know who wants to keep that plant on more than anybody else? Are the people who live by it. Because that plant 
a plant can make six million gallons of desalinated water. You know, they yes. built a huge desalination facility there to provide water for the plants, but they built it for six plants. They have four, you know, they have four million unused gallons of desalinated water that they share with the county around them. So last time I checked, uh, California is pretty eager to have fresh water, and they're just basically, you know, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna pay a huge price if that plant shuts down. Tremendous right. price, but maybe there'll be a lesson for the for the rest of the country uh, to not do that. Yeah, <laughs> again, it's, we're we're talking about case studies and how you can learn. We we touched on the problems. We talked about you know what what naysayers say. But really, a lot of people have fear over nuclear because you've had three major incidents that have happened with overheating and then, um, you know, these explosions of these nuclear plants that have caused radioactive materials to, to go into the atmosphere. I mean, we're talking about Fukushima, we're talking about Chernobyl, and we're talking about Three Mile Island. Those three all around the same, around the same thing of, you know, a failure in the cooling system. And we'll get into thorium um, later in a segment, but what is interesting and what's exciting when looking at thorium is you radically reduce this element of overheating with these with these molten salt reactors mm-hmm. and the issues that we've seen in the past with these major incidents when you have had you know again like you're saying a, a lack of water with with pretty yeah. much all three of these in 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 a failure of the cooling system yeah. so people have this fear um and you know these these three incidents were terrible. Um, I, I think that Chernobyl, I, I'd read something that the the amount, let me see, the toxicity of the radioactive cloud was equivalent to 400 Hiroshima bomb explosions. But again, all of that can be prevented if we create more efficient reactors and we're using elements as you're um, talking about thorium. So could you talk just very briefly on, you know, this this fear of nuclear and, and people's thoughts of these three incidents that happened, and why should we not be fearing um, nuclear? Nuclear, you know, nuclear accidents uh, mostly generate a fear response for two reasons. Uh, one, people don't understand, you know, radiation and exposure and dosage, and I don't blame them. Because the, the measurements are stupid. You know, who knows what a sievert is or a rad, you know. <laughs> like, these are, you know, the units of measure mean nothing to anybody, right? You know, so so people just hear radiation and they clutch at their pearls and they're like, oh, God. You know, but, the, you know, what is never explained to them is the Earth itself is a phenomenally radioactive place to live, right? The background radiation that I'm sitting in right now, that you're sitting in, is a lot. You know, it's one of the things we learned, you know, which nobody really talks about. We learned just how resilient the human body is from Fukushima, from uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because there were a lot of people that were immolated in the actual bomb, the fireball and the, you know, the explosive wave. But the people who had exposure, you know, they... There were, there were a lot of them who lived and had children. It was something we learned. It was And uh, today, you know, Hiroshima and Nakazaki are cities of a million people. 
So even nuclear bombs going off don't create the the long, long lived stuff that people always think. You know that that old ten thousand year number. It's it's just not it's not how that works. And so 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 when you when you get to that, you're talking about fear because you just don't know it. Nobody nobody gets what radiation is. Nobody understands it very well. It's one of our missions to try and explain to people what exposure and dose and things like that mean. And uh, uh, the other the other thing is it's because it doesn't happen, and that's the other reason why people are afraid, right? Because when you get on an airplane, you might know in your head that air travel is the safest way to travel. It's more dangerous to walk, you know, a mile down the street to the grocery store. Much, much more dangerous than to get on an airplane, right? It's super dangerous to drive cross-country in a car rather than fly cross-country, right? We all know that in our head. But, boy, you know, you get in a plane and it starts to shake with some some turbulence, and you're going to start to question that and be like, oh, my God, this seems so scary. So so three nuclear accidents that caused a grand total of 50 deaths over the course of 60 years of civilian nuclear, that's not very much. Right. I mean, it seems like to me, I mean, this is the same with a lot of things, what people don't understand, they're scared of, right? I can I can think of of my grandparents. They're they're over eighty years old, and you know they're they're scared of technology. They're scared of a computer. They're scared of a phone. They because they don't understand how to use it, and that scares them. But nuclear is the same way. I mean, really, we need to be educating more people, and I know that that you're doing that through your organization, um, and and educating them on okay, this is why nuclear is needed. It's not something to be scared of because you don't understand it. It's something that we need to learn and educate not only not only the older people in, in our generation, but, you know, the people that are in schools and that are growing up, they need to learn about this stuff as well. So, John, could you could you talk about what fuels uh, the nuclear reactors today? What element is being used to fuel these nuclear reactors, um, not only in the U.S., but in, in the world in general? So every commercial reactor today runs on uranium, okay? And uh, the uh, you get uranium from the ground. Natural uranium is about as safe to handle as thorium because only one-third of 1%, usually on average, of uranium is usable as a fuel. So that's why you have to spend a lot of time and energy concentrating your your uranium and you want uranium 235 and all the rest of the uranium that you get out of the process you know you can you can make a make a boat anchors out of it or bullets you know some people use depleted uranium they call it uh but it's uh you know it's just a very heavy heavy material and uh so the the only usable uranium really is u235 and in a nuclear power plant, it's enriched to about 3 to 5%. And in some of the advanced reactors today, they want to use some stuff called HALU, which is high assay, low enriched uranium, basically medium 
you know, medium enriched up to 19.9%. And then things like bombs use essentially 100%, you know, enriched uranium, 100% U-235 or plutonium. Actually, really, it's plutonium. Uh, and, uh, and then things like nuclear submarines, you know, those Navy reactors use like 95, 99% enriched U-235. Uh, and that's so that they never have to change their fuel and uh, they never get affected by uh, things like xenon poisoning, which can disrupt the operation of a reactor. So, you know, the Navy has uh, different requirements. They've got, uh, you know, an odd one-off kind of reactor that they use. But generally, your civilian reactors use about 3 to 5% enriched uranium. Mm. Okay, so, so f- again, from research that I looked into, um, and, you know, we're talking about rare earth on the last episode. From what I found was currently almost all of the uranium used in U.S. commercial um, reactors is imported. So after reaching a peak in 1980, um, domestic mining now accounts for about 5% of yep. the fuel used in U.S. reactors. And to me, that's, a, that's, a, a, that's an issue of national security. As we've talked about last week, we talked about REEs. We talked a few weeks ago about, about semiconductors. All these things are, are, are national security risks because when you're importing um, things like this from countries um, outside and, and maybe eastern countries, you know, there's definitely a risk to that. So could you talk a little bit about um, how that poses a national security risk um, to the U.S.? Yeah, well, we're, you know, we're reliant on friends and uh, not so great friends to supply us with, with our, you know, our energy, 20% of our energy comes from nuclear power. You know, whether you, whether you like it or not, that's the fact, you know, one, uh, you know, one fifth of our power and, you know, probably 60 to 80% of all of our carbon free power comes from, from nuclear. And, uh, uh, so Australia provides a lot of uranium to us and to the Chinese. Canada has a tremendous amount of uranium, uh, that, uh, so they're friends and they're close by. So that's, you know, pretty good source, not the worst, but, you know, we get a lot of it from, you know, the, the Europeans get a lot of their uranium from Africa and, uh, you know, Kazakhstan is a huge vendor of, uh, uranium and that's a little bit on the bubble now as to you know the sphere of influence there is pretty worrisome uh you know in terms of how endangered they are from from uh that neighborhood it can get pretty spicy there's a war going on there right now you know in in that neighborhood so yeah it's a huge national security issue uh one reason it's not bigger though that might give you a little you know, uh, make you feel better is that, you know, that's one thing about nuclear. If you, if you fuel a nuclear reactor, you know, you've got 18 months of fuel, right? It's not like a coal plant where at most you have a couple weeks of coal sitting at the site and you're feeding the thing coal constantly or natural gas. You know, we don't store a lot of natural gas in this country. We, you know, it's, it's astoundingly expensive to store natural gas. So we use it 
as we produce it. Uh, you know, we don't really generate electricity from oil much anymore, you know, but uh, even that is hard to store on site. Uh, whereas nuclear is so dense that we put one load in the reactor and we got 18 months of fuel. So one nice, you know, intermittent interruptions in the uranium supply, uh, we can ride past those. But it is still a huge national security issue that, that in the end, if there's a long enough and deep enough disruption, uh, we, you know, we will be out. And uh, 5% is not enough to keep an industry going, right? So we're going to lose workers. We're going to lose knowledge. You know, the machines that do the work will break and not be fixed. And, you know, no one will go back into that business. Even if we say it's, in, you know, it's critical to the needs of the United States, people will be like, why the hell would I go in that business? You know, I'm inviting the NRC to climb up my butt. You know, I'm inviting people to, you know, cry and wail at my gate, you know, that we're, you know, you know, not doing things right. I mean, it's a tough business. And so we're down to, we're, as you say, down to 5%, and that is not sustainable. So a lot of it is we don't do it just because the supply, because the supply isn't necessarily what's a national security issue, because we probably can depend on Canada. You know, we can probably depend on Australia. You know, it's the fact that we might lose what's called the industrial base, you know. So the industrial base of humans and machines and facilities and knowledge will evaporate very quickly unless we sustain that, you know, and we can't sustain it by producing just 5% of our own fuel. You know, you couldn't sustain any industry like that. You know, we wouldn't have, if we imported all of our bread, no one would know how to make bread anymore. Right. You know, <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, this is the problem with a lot of industries, as you said, you know, semiconductors, you know, the, all the knowledge base is going to, you know, Korea and Taiwan. You know, it's a, it's a big, big deal. Stay tuned for part two of this series as we discuss thorium, monazite, and the impact of rare earth mining for the future of nuclear, China's strategy on leading the way in thorium-based reactors, the work John and his team at the Thorium Energy Alliance are doing, and policy on nuclear energy and what is to come. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope your mind was open to the possibilities of nuclear.